When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Sound familiar? These words are from the 1989 film Dead Poet Society. If you haven't seen it, definitely do yourself a favor and add it to your media intake for the week. But I mention this great film because there's someone like Robin Williams' character that unequivocally resonates with this idea that poetry is about passion. I think it'd be even more accurate to say that his poetry goes beyond passion and straight into the world of social engagement. His work creatively inspires his listeners out of ignorance and into the world of a real and authentic kind of empathy. His name is Clint Smith. Now, Clint Smith is a writer, teacher, and a PhD candidate at Harvard University. He's a 2014 National Poetry Slam champion. He's an individual world poetry slam finalist, and he's the author of the poetry collection, Counting Descent. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Guardian, and he's delivered two popular TED Talks, The Danger of Silence and How to Raise a Black Son in America. Let me just tell you, he is insanely talented and basically way over all of our heads, certainly mine. He does really, really important work in the world of words that asks us the most important questions concerning the world that we live in today. What makes his work especially unique and interesting to me is his blend of art and activism. And I've been a fan of Clint's work for a long time now. We have a number of mutual friends, some of whom who have been on the podcast already. And I've also just been following him on Twitter for years at this point. And I have so much admiration from Clint and I love learning from him. And so when he said yes to being on the podcast, I was really honored. But honestly, you guys, I'm not afraid to say this, but Clint Smith absolutely intimidates me because he's way too smart for me. I just, this whole conversation, I felt like a bumbling buffoon compared to his brilliance. But it's really cool because he also motivates me to be more informed and more intellectually conversant in why the world looks the way it does. And I don't know, maybe you guys will feel that way after listening to this conversation too. <laughs> and if you do, then that means that this podcast is doing its job well in making us celebrate the inspiring people that are bringing real tangible hope into the world, but also becoming like them in the ways that we take action after being informed. I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good, the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. I am so excited for you to get to learn from Clint. I know that I did. Let's just jump straight into this conversation. Clint. 
Clint, I am so excited to be talking with you today. I've been a fan of your work for, I think, a few years now. I first came across you online when I saw, I wonder if it was a TED Talk, but it might have just been a friend recommending your book. And I remember ordering it when it first came out, and it showed up at my door. It's beautiful, and I was hooked. Your poetry is absolutely incredible. I appreciate that. Yeah, that that really means a lot. We're approaching the year anniversary of the book. So uh, it's it's been a really incredible experience traveling the country and sharing the the work and the stories and the, the ideas with folks. And uh, I, I finished, I toured from September to May, did 108 events. Wow. Um, and so it was, I've never done anything like that before, but I had a blast. Uh, I ate way too much uh, room service food. And so <laughs> I just, uh, I committed myself to running a half marathon to sort of get, get all those 10 PM chicken wings out of my system. But it was, uh, it was an incredible, incredible time. And, and I'm very proud of the book. That is amazing. It's really something to be proud of. It's beautiful. I have officially read it twice. And then I've also listened to tons of the recordings of you performing different poems. And, uh, it's great because it's, it's so deeply personal and so unique and powerful. And personally, I've been a fan of poetry for years now. I was just telling you before we got started that uh, we had Anise Moshgani on the podcast, who's one of my favorite poets. And you guys know each other, which is amazing. Yeah, Anise is uh, it's funny because I, I consider Anise a dear friend now. Um, you know, we both grew up in New Orleans. That both informs a lot of the work that we do um, as as people in the world, it shapes our politics, but obviously shapes a lot of our our artistic work. Um, but Anise is also, you know, a few years older than me, uh, and he is in many ways to to so many folks. I'm kind of like half a generation behind him. Uh, for many of us, he is the one of the standard bearers of of the spoken word community. I mean, I remember you know being in high school and college and watching videos of Anis Mojgani and being like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I don't know why we're spending all this time reading Walt Whitman. We need to be listening to Anis Mojgani. This is unbelievable. And and so, you know, over the course of the past few years, as as it's moved from sort of like fanboy to incredible poet to, you know, I'm still a fanboy, but I'm also his his friend now. It's uh it's been great to to collaborate with him and and, you know, connect with him as a peer. Uh, and just learn from him. He's just a genuinely kind, good person uh, in the way that you hope so many of the the writers and artists and uh, folks that you look up to when you're younger are. And and that's always really refreshing. And I think it's really interesting when you, you know, get to a place in your career where you get to start spending time with your heroes. And, you know, they always say don't meet your heroes, but I've actually never had uh, any problems with that. I, I'm sure that that is a phrase for a reason, but there's really, if you're admiring people for the right reasons, there's some really beautiful people out there. And it's, it's a really wonderful thing to get to spend time with them. I try to remind myself of that, especially in moments like the one we're in, in this sort of what feels in many ways, like a really uh, precarious political and and social moment. And uh, when I think we're often questioning the intentions of not only folks in power, but folks who put those people in power. You know, I think that there's been a lot of conversations around whether the intentions of Trump voters, for example, were sort of culturally malevolent or not. And, you know, how much of that was shaped by race and how much of that was shaped by uh, a nostalgia for a history that, you know, was predicated on exclusion. And I tend to reject false binaries. And I think that 
multiple things can be true. I think that I believe that there are that most people in the world are good people who are doing the best they can in a really difficult, complicated, confusing world. I also believe that there are people who yearn for uh, a time, who yearn for a set of uh, hierarchies, social hierarchies and political hierarchies that are predicated on having some people on the bottom end of that hierarchy and positioning themselves at the top, regardless of what that means for those people. And, and, you know, I think this is interesting because this is a podcast about hope. uh, And I think for me, in many ways, hope stems from uh, an accurate assessment of reality. I think that we sometimes delude ourselves into a sort of false hope because we won't accurately analyze or make sense of or diagnose a specific phenomenon or a specific moment. But I think, you know, I've felt most hopeful when I feel like I've done the the intellectual work or the the personal work to make sense of why the world exists the way that it does and, and specifically along issues I care about. And once I have a sense of why that is, I'm able to come up with more meaningful and, and actual solutions rather than solutions that operate under some sort of false pretense. Man, that is... Absolutely beautifully said, and I especially love that quote you just said, hope stems from an accurate assessment of reality. Because when I first started this podcast, I think that my ultimate goal, I don't think I was self-aware enough to understand this, but I think that my goal was I want to create a podcast about happiness. So I started having conversations with people who I saw to be happy, and the people that I saw to be most happy, it turns out were actually just the most hopeful. And the people that were actually the most hopeful we're actually paying a lot of attention to the injustices in the world, the brokenness in the world. And they had an honest and accurate assessment of reality. And within that, I think they were able to find a much deeper hope than people who have a essentially a shallow optimism. And so I really like that you brought that up at the beginning of the podcast because I see this in your work. It's deeply hopeful, but you are talking about you know, injustice of years past and injustice today. And uh, your work in education does the exact same thing. And so it's it's great to hear that that's coming from a very intentional place for you because I think sometimes that's actually what it takes because I think that hope actually comes from a place of intentionality. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, for example, so, you know, we are in the midst of, you know, a racial justice movement that has been happening uh, for many, in earnest for many years, but really, in a in a different way, in a sort of post Trayvon Martin, post Ferguson era, so like after 2013, after 2014, um, and the movement for Black Lives has brought uh, renewed attention to so much of the so many of the inequities that exist across the our political system, social sectors, our uh, our criminal justice system, uh, and part of what you know helps us properly diagnose the problems in these spaces is having a better sense of history. And I think there are a lot of academics, a lot of writers, a lot of thinkers, a lot of journalists who have over the past, I think, five or six years been taking history a lot more seriously in the way that they attempt to make sense of what we see, right? So I think that there was a moment where a lot of the political analysis that was happening in our sort of like larger social discourse was very ahistorical. And so I think what happens in that sense is that if you're looking at, for example, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. If you're trying to understand the 
problems of gun violence in Washington, D.C., or the problems of drug abuse, and you are not taking into consideration the history of housing segregation, the history of uh, public policy decisions that make our businesses more streamlined in terms of the processes of being built in certain parts of the city and as compared to others, uh, zoning laws, uh, immigration policies, the nature of food insecurity. So the list goes on and on and on. But if you, you know, if you're not taking those things into consideration, then it becomes very easy to look at, you know, Southeast DC or Northeast DC or Anacostia and fall into the trap of cultural pathology and thinking that the reason that people in those communities live the way that they do is somehow a result of a sort of cultural or personal or even genetic defect or or, a, or an imperfection that results from that is innate to a culture rather than a series of public policy decisions that have been made over the course of history that have made these communities look the way that they do. And so an example I always think about is, uh, you know, while Ferguson was happening, I was, you know, I started graduate school the same week Mike Brown was killed. And so my job became sitting in the library, you know, for 12 to 16 hours a day, reading about the history of racial inequality in the United States and then going out, you know, leaving the library and turning on the news or getting on my phone and seeing the very direct manifestations of that history appear. But if you if you really take the time to understand, you know, the the extent to which housing segregation has shaped our current social and economic landscape and and good books on that are Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law um, and Douglas Massey and Nancy Denton's uh, American Apartheid um, or or thinking about the history of the New Deal uh, and the way that the New Deal, which we talk about as being the most progressive series of legislative acts that created the contemporary middle class, which it did, but it also very purposefully left black people out of so many of the benefits of social security, minimum wage protection, the GI bill, housing mortgages, et cetera, right? And so you have this thing that created the sort of contemporary 20th century middle-class America and resulted in like intergenerational wealth that would, you know, spread across generations in different families. And you exclude an entire group of people like that, it would seem counterintuitive to then look at that group of people years later and, and wonder why they live in the conditions that they do, right? And so that's like one example of thinking about how, you know, for me, when I learn about those things and when I get a better sense of those things, I'm like, oh, I feel more hopeful because I understand why the community looks the way that it does and we can create better solutions from that rather than falling into the trap of being like, well, you know, I guess certain people are just lazy or I guess certain people just don't work hard or certain people are predisposed to violence because those things aren't true. But when we talk about these issues without talking about the history that leads to them, then, then you know, whether it's explicit or implicit, I think people can fall into that trap. That's really good. Is it that when you understand the real problem, you can actually understand what the solution is, how to undo that initial problem? Yeah, in many ways, I think it's. I think part of it is a, a recognition, and this is something that when you know when I was in the classroom full time, uh, when I was teaching high school English, that I would tell my students all the time it's that you know the the context of your community is not an inevitability. Uh, the reason that your community looks the way that it does is not a fixed or static entity. Um, and it is something that if you understand how power operates, if you understand that you have agency to exert within uh, a set of power dynamics that you can get a better sense of, then you can understand how to navigate and 
move about a system and situate yourself in that system. And oftentimes a system that has been built with the intention of having these disparate um, and really harmful outcomes. Uh, but you can understand how to make amends to that system or or work toward building uh, an entirely new system that is more that is built on the premise of equity rather than exclusion. That's really, really good. And I want to get into this conversation on education because you worked for years in education and now you're still working in the world of education just in a different context. But you taught high school English for years. Tell me about the lives of the students that you taught. What were their lives like? Yeah, so I taught uh, high school English in Prince George's County, Maryland, at a big public school that was, uh, you know, 96% students of color, uh, I think 70, 75% free and reduced lunch. Uh, And it was really interesting. It was a large first and second generation immigrant population. So the area of Maryland where I taught uh, was a huge uh, location for where the State Department put asylum refugees. Um, And so you had, I mean, we had students from... Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Somalia, Kenya, a lot of East Africa, a lot of West Africa. Um, and in that, they came together with students who, you know, were born and raised in Prince George's County or were born and raised in a part of D.C. that eventually became gentrified and, and sort of pushed them out. Um, so it was a really fascinating amalgamation of students um, and made for some really interesting conversations, especially in a literature classroom. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting because people will, the way that we talk about diversity is fascinating because there's sort of the diversity, the face value diversity was like, what does some place look like when you see it? Um, And then there's the sort of like more important diversity, I think, of what the, who those people are, right? Beyond their phenotype or beyond their gender or sexual orientation, so for me, I had a lot of students who were black and brown and who ostensibly might look like the black and brown students at any other school, but they brought with them such a range and myriad of ex- different experiences um, from having, you know, whether they were born in a different country, whether their parents were born in a different country, whether they, you know, li- grew up in Southeast D.C. and then moved to Prince George's County, whether they've lived there their entire lives. You know, I had some students whose parents who never graduated from high school. I had some students um, in some of my IB classes who, you know, lived in the wealthiest part of Prince George's County. And so it was, it was a bunch of black and brown kids who were all so different and so brilliant and so thoughtful. Um, and, you know, I always tell people that, like, without teaching, without those years I spent teaching, nothing in my life that has happened over the past several years would have happened at all. I mean, this this book wouldn't have happened. Going to Harvard to get my PhD wouldn't have happened. The TED Talks wouldn't have happened. I mean, it is. it taught me so much about myself. You know, people always say that nothing teaches you who you are truly like having kids. And and I didn't, when I was teaching full-time, didn't have a, a child. We had our first son uh, about two months ago. And so I'm experiencing parenthood uh, for the first time. But in, me- in many ways, I'm what it means to be so deeply invested in a bunch of 15-year-olds will also teach you a lot about who you are as compared to like who you imagine yourself or who you want yourself to be. And I think that, you know, part of what you try to do is to you try to be the version of yourself that you are asking your students to be. You're asking your students to like be these certain types of people in the world, be certain types of citizens, uh, have certain types of empathy. And you can't ask your students to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. So I think it immediately creates 
this really profound sense of accountability. And then on a sort of larger level, part of what happens is we often talk about education uh, in a silo. Like we talk about education as if it's devoid um, or separate from the other things happening in society. But but what you become acutely aware of when you start teaching is that you know it is impossible to separate the realities of education, contemporary education from, again, like housing segregation, from food insecurity, from mass incarceration, from, uh, you know, uh, policies around drug criminalization or decriminalization. I mean, you know, our students' lives are affected by these things every single day before they come to school and after they leave school. And if we're not considering those issues in the way that we make sense of education reform policies, then we're not actually really doing the work because what happens is you know similar to what we were talking about before but if you look at a school and a school is failing and you are not doing any sort of meaningful diagnosis beyond the context of that physical infrastructure or the landscape of that school and then you you start to blame the teachers you start to blame the students you start to blame the administration and you're not you're not looking at the bigger picture of like what well what is the housing situation around that school what are the neighborhoods that are feeding into that school and what are the conditions of those neighborhoods? What sort of resources are being afforded to those neighborhoods and not what has historically been done to that community to make it look the way that it, that it is? You know, what and how are we understanding, you know, the relationship between property tax uh, as a mechanism for funding schools and the quality of the school that these students go to? I mean, so so you can go back and back and back. But when you teach, you realize that. And for me, uh, I reached a point where I was becoming really invested in trying to get a better sense of what those things were. And and that's when I knew I wanted to uh, make a transition to, to graduate school to, to really do a deep dive into understanding a lot of things that I think I had a surface level understanding of that I just kind of wanted more time to make sense of. That's fascinating. And I, I love this idea that teaching, you know, it really gave you a bigger understanding of the context of your students and the bigger understanding of the context of yourself. And then it forced you to kind of dive deeper. Growing up, what did education look like for you? What was, you know, what was your home life like? What was your, what was your schooling growing up? Did you have a Mr. Clint Smith in your life as well? Uh, That's a good question. You know, I had a lot of great teachers. Um, You know, I think Toni Morrison has this quote, I'm paraphrasing, where she talks about, you know, if there's not a book that has been written then you need to write it. You know, if they write the book that you wanted in your library growing up. And I almost think of teaching the same way, you know, like I wanted to be the sort of teacher or attempt to be the aspirational version or aspire to be the the teacher that uh, I would have wanted and needed, I think, when I was uh, when I was young. You know, I most of my teachers in growing up in New Orleans public schools were were like this, you know, older. They I didn't have I had very few young teachers. I mean, when I started teaching, I was 22 years old. And so I certainly did not have any teachers of that age that I can remember. I maybe have one or two. And those teachers, the ones who were young, were white. You know, So I didn't have any young black or brown teachers in front of the classroom to sort of demonstrate what a different model of thinking about education could look like, right? And so, you know, part of the work of being an educator is is helping your students become invested in education in the first place. And then then there's the work of teaching. And so, you know, part of it is that you have so many of our students who are 
going to classrooms where they are told that they have learning disabilities or they uh, are, you know, constantly punished or they are uh, suspended or they are um, not affirmed. And on the most basic level, I think that we like undervalue the extent to which telling students and just young people nice things and affirming them like really makes a huge di- i mean i have i have a memory of you know one of my teachers miss mueller in third grade and i wrote this poem about the color gray and it was a terrible poem i mean it's like a you know i hate the color gray it reminds me of a rainy day hey 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 can i get an a you know it was it wasn't a good poem i mean i was in third grade but but i remember she came to me and she put her hand on my shoulder and she said clint you are a poet. You are a wonderful poet. Keep writing. And I've like never forgotten that for the rest of my life. She could have, maybe she made it up. Maybe she, you know, didn't mean it at all. But I, you know, in third grade, you're what, eight, nine years old. I, 20 years later, that moment has stood with me and stuck with me in a way that she might be, maybe she forgot about it as soon as she said it, like the moment after Sometimes, you know, in our discourse around education, like sometimes you just need to tell students nice things. Like they live in, we live, they live in these unsettling, often precarious, difficult situations for a a range of reasons, might have difficult home lives. And if you just, maybe there's just might not be somebody telling them, good job, or like, you're great, or that was a wonderful essay, you're a great writer, or you are really good at, I mean, just, the extent to which that gives a child a sense of confidence and self-esteem is is almost limitless, you know? And so that's that's one thing that I I knew from my own experience as a student that I wanted to bring into the classroom is just like and and it's not you don't have to give empty promise or empty affirmation, right? You don't tell students something that's not true, but but when a student does something well, you should like really let it be known and and let them know and make it uh, personal, but make it public. I mean, you know, and as adults, it's the same thing. You know, it's the same people. There are people write books and make millions of dollars off this stuff. That's essentially like the best managerial strategy is to like affirm your employees and tell them good job. I mean, and it's the same thing with with students. So yeah, um, and I mean, I think about that when I was growing up. I had teachers who who kind of spoke those truths into my life. And a lot of it is just that I don't think that I had a real sense of self-awareness until, I mean, even a few years ago, you know, and maybe I'll say that again in in 10 years and say, I didn't have self-awareness until a few years ago, but you really do take the things that people who are around you, especially the people that you kind of trust your teachers, you take the things that they say and you, you really take them on and you say, this, this is true about me. And I think it's a, a real game changer and it seems that you really lived into, you know, your teacher saying that you are a poet. And along those lines, like, do you remember when you first decided, like, I might want to pursue poetry? You know, was that something that was a really a part of you from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I've always loved reading. I've always loved writing. I mean, I remember, you know, my mom, we lived down the street from a, a public library. There were always books in our home. Um, I was really into the summer book contest that you, I think a lot of folks grew up with them, but you had to, if, if you read, you know, 10 books or a thousand pages or I can't remember. The and then you got number, pizza. You would, get, you would get pizza, right? The and best. I was so into, I was like, I really want that Pizza Hut personal pan pizza more than anything, you know? And I would like really work the whole summer to make sure I read a thousand pages so I could get my personal pan pizza coupon 
and and enjoy the deliciousness of the pepperoni as it melted in my mouth. Um, so I've loved reading for a long time. Um, and as you get older, you realize that the best writers are also uh, the most voracious readers. Um, so I was thinking about reading. I was thinking about writing for for many years. And it was always a big part of my life. But it wasn't until the summer of 2008. I lived in New York City. Um, I had an internship at a publishing company there. And this was between my sophomore and junior year of college. And uh, I went to a place called the New Eurekan Poets Cafe, which is on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, and it is a sort of staple of New York, the New York City poetry scene is one of the most acclaimed and recognized poetry venues in the country, um, and really the world. I mean, every you you know every single Friday night, it's completely packed, and it's an incredible environment. So I went, but I didn't know much about spoken word. I had watched a couple of videos online, but my friend was like, "Oh, we should go to the New Yorkian. Come on!" And I was like, "The New Yorkian? What is that? No, let's go see that new Tom Cruise movie." And she was like, "Boo, you're whack. We're not going to that. Let's go." And so we went. And I had just never been so viscerally moved by art as I was that night. Like I, I, you know, and I was an English major in college at this time, so we were reading, you know, Whitman and Sexton and Yeats and Keats and and all of these folks of of the canon, and and I was feeling very distant from from them. I, you know, this was a moment where I was, I think, I was becoming. Uh, beginning to become increasingly politicized. Uh, this was the time around uh, the Troy Davis death penalty trial in in Georgia. This was uh, after the Gina Six. Um, and so I think this was like, you know, even before Trayvon, this was the like early stages that I think set the, uh, of the, of the, you know, mid to late 2000s that set the stage for a lot of the, what we see happening over the past several years. So, so I was, those things were on my mind. And when I was reading Keats, I was like, this is great, but like, this is, in my mind at that time, you know, as a 19-year-old, I was like, there's something more urgent to be said. And so I stepped into this venue and there were people talking about issues that, you know, were happening all around us. There were people talking about police brutality. Uh, there were people talking about LGBTQ rights. There were people talking about uh, living, you know, where the first poem I ever heard was a woman who had cerebral palsy. And in three minutes, the way I talk, thought about an entire demographic of people completely changed. And disability isn't something that was ever at the forefront of my consciousness but this woman getting on stage and sharing her story through this poem over the course of three minutes would shape the way I thought about disability moving forward for the rest of my life. And I was like, this is, this is wild. That the, my, I came into that room thinking about the world one way and left later that night thinking about the world in a very different way. And, and I don't know what this is, but I want to do it. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm not at all like a naturally performative person. I was like, not a shy kid, but I wasn't. And, you know, a super extroverted child by any means. Um, and so, you know, getting on stage and sharing, being vulnerable in front of a group of strangers is not something that, you know, I would have or my parents would have thought that uh, lent itself to my disposition. But uh, I went back to school that year and I started a poetry club and, you know, it was like our own little college version of Dead Poets Society. And we would like go meet at the top of the main academic building um, every Sunday and, and we'd read poems and write poems and watch poems and share poems. And and it was just this really amazing sort of like Sunday night environment. And uh, and then I graduated. I lived in South Africa for a year in Johannesburg. And, and there's actually like a really robust and, and incredible performing art scene there. And so 
I, I got really involved in that scene and then I moved to DC and I was on the DC slam team for three years while I was teaching. And, uh, and that, you know, was and continues to be such a, an important community for me in terms of shaping my identity as an artist, as a writer, uh, shaping a lot of my politics. Um, and you know, those, those three years on that team, um, and we won the national poetry slam in 2014 would, I mean, shape the trajectory of, of my writing career in in ways that I don't even think I fully understand. It's so incredible. What a, like an, an amazing way to kind of grow through that and to, you know, end up winning, what is it called? The grand, the, the national poetry yeah, slam. Yeah, the national poetry slam. <laughs> but man, this is so incredible. And so during this whole time, you're you're sharing poetry and you had been inspired by this person who you know, had had maybe changed the way that you thought about things uh, through a poem. And I feel like a lot of your poetry, it has this incredible power to change the way that people think about things. And, and ultimately, that's what you're doing when you're in the world of education is trying to help change the way that people think about things or, or maybe even think about things for the first time, get people to think about things for the first time. And, and it's getting me to think about this idea that that I've been considering for a while of how do we make sure that we're not preaching to the choir when we're creating art, when we're trying to do something that moves the needle? How can we make sure that we're letting our message get out to people who maybe, you know, think differently already or maybe uh, aren't open to hearing these ideas or or who maybe just aren't even in, in our little bubbles or our circles? Yeah, that's an important question. For me, I think what that means is that you have to practice that yourself first you know I, I think it we can't expect people who who are not uh, aligned with us politically or or share our larger social concerns or values to listen to us and open their minds if we're not willing to do the same thing uh, across the aisle and you know we there's a rhetoric of like we live in this like really polarized moment I think we've been in, in a politically polarized uh, moment for for some time but it is uh, exacerbated, obviously, and and looks different, and you can you can see it very distinctly because of social media, and the way that people can curate the nature of what sort of news they're consuming and and whose ideas they're following. So, for example, for me, I try to make a point to uh, follow a lot of conservative folks on Twitter, and most of the time, I'm like very upset by what they're saying or completely disagree with it, and that's nine out of ten times. But then one time, they might say something that I'm like, actually. There's room for meaningful discussion, or, or there's there's something that we can connect on here. I imagine that you know there. Are, I know there. I know there are folks because they, they come in my mentions who who follow me who disagree with the things that I say. And and you know I unless somebody is like trolling you and and saying something that's you know degrading or disrespectful, then I I try to be you know engage in the way that I would want to be engaged with and. So yeah, so part of it, I think we have to model that in our own lives. And, you know, I try to, you know, not just Twitter, but like also read uh, folks who I don't agree with. You know, I was reading uh, William F. Buckley's work. I was reading Ayn Rand's book. And, and, you know, half the time I wanted to like throw the book across the room. But but I think it's important to remind ourselves that like this is the way that a lot of people think about the world. And it's not helpful to pretend as if that doesn't exist uh, or 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 that is that it is something that we should wholly discount so yeah in in terms of the book uh, 
or the the work or the art or my writing you know i as a as a writer i have no control over who is going to read or not read what i say after it is you know after it's in the book or after it's published online or what have you that is kind of out of my control and that's the nature of art you know that's the nature of what it means to be an artist and to put things out into the world and and you just kind of have to be okay with people interpreting or making sense of the work as uh, as they will and that is their right to make sense of of what you put out into the world in a way that uh, that they'd like to, but um, you know what I I hope that the work can be illuminative for people. You know I I know that it you know folks have emailed me or tweeted at me or written me and tell me that it has. You know I remember after my f- second TED talk um, in 2015 that it was about the sort of t- the the quote unquote talk that black parents have to have with their kids uh, about growing up in a world that is often taught to fear them. And I just remember having a lot of folks who emailed me were just like, I had no idea your parents had to have a specific conversation with you about how to uh, be when you get pulled over or how to, uh, that you can't do the same things as your white friends because they might have very different implications for you and for your life. Um, And I think that's helpful. You know, I'm not writing the book for them. I'm not writing the book with the specific intention of teaching people because as, as much as I appreciate it, I also want people to read the book, you know, kind of like we talked about before, Toni Morrison, you know, talking about write the book you wanted as a kid. I wanted kids who were like me, who grew up in in similar situations to read that book and feel seen and feel like this is a story that I've not experienced before or heard before, you know, because I, I grew up reading, I think the only, there were the sort of books with white characters and then there were books with black characters. The majority of those black characters were either historical figures or they grew up in poverty and or and lived in public housing and you know played basketball and and things that are very true for many many people of color but that also was not my reality like I grew up in a middle class home I was very bad at basketball I played soccer I went to a school that was like very mixed race mixed income it was like the Disney Channel you know we were riding bikes with theme music playing in the background and our hair blowing in the wind. Um, it was obviously their hair, not my hair. But, <laughs> but those stories, those sort of nuanced and different portrayals of black adolescents were not really, they didn't really exist in the world. So I, you know, when I wrote this book and, and came up with the idea for this book, I wanted it to reflect the plurality of, of what black adolescence is and that we grow, we are, uh, a community that shares a, a specific diasporic lineage, but we are like a community, kind of like I said before, in which there's so much diversity of experiences within that. And I wanted something to speak to, to that experience, you know, for in part for, for kids like me who, who didn't see that in a lot of the literature they grew up with. And I think that's a really beautiful thing because in a lot of ways, it can kind of pave the way for uh, other people to have that experience as well. You know, people who grew up in your community with your experience, you know, they can read your book and they can see what you're up to and say, okay, there's a path. I can see that instead of just that dichotomous experience of, you know, books about white kids or books about historical black kids or or kids in, in poverty, you know, all of a sudden you're creating this other pathway. And I think that's really, really incredible. I appreciate it. Man, so your book starts off with this quote from Ralph Ellison that says, I recognize no dichotomy between art and protest. 
And I think of that as a really interesting way to start your book. What was your intentionality on that? You know, how does that encapsulate what you chose to create? Yeah, uh, you know, Ralph Ellison is a, a, a very much a literary hero of mine. I think you know he's he's known best for Invisible Man, the his National Book Award winning novel. Uh, but he also wrote some incredible, incredible uh, essays that, that are lesser known. And, and he was a remarkable essayist, a nonfiction writer, uh, and and cultural and social commentator as much as he was an incredible novelist. Uh, and and so I think about his ideas and, and read a lot of his work and interviews a lot. And so this came from an interview that he did with the Paris Review in 1954, I believe. I'd have to double check on that, 53 or 54. But um, in the larger quote, he is talking about, you know, the, the interviewer asked him, um, what is it like to be, uh, you know, in his language, a Negro writer, um, and and do you feel some sort of responsibility to uh, have work that is protest literature or socially engaged or doing the work of a sort of political resistance, if you will? And part of what Ellison says, which I think is really important, is that he asks one: Why is this a question that is asked almost only of black writers? You know, black that black writers are often asked, like, "Oh, who is is your work meant to?" Uh, protest the conditions of of the day or of your people or of your community. Um, how do you see yourself as an artist, as an activist? And he's he's making the point that there's not a problem with that in and of itself. The problem is that when those sorts of questions are being asked only of one demographic of writer, and he's like, people aren't asking the same sort of thing about Dostoevsky and and the nature of his, you know, and and if you look at 19th century Russian literature, I mean, it is full of social commentary. It is full of what we would, you know, in the U.S. deem sort of protest literature in many ways. And it is full of uh, a range of political points that are, are clearly are not objective, you know. And so he's like, part of the nature of art is that you are imagining uh, a different world, especially of a novelist, that you are, are a poet, and that you are imagining and rendering and creating a different world that is different than or is speaking to the conditions of the world that currently exists. And that in and of itself is an act of protest, right? Like imagining a different world as compared to the one that we live in is is resistance, whether it's me, whether it's Dostoevsky, whether it's Faulkner, you know, and those are important things to consider. And so that that quote is pulled from that interview and and I think, you know, is trying to capture the the false duality of of what it means to be a writer and what it means to be committed to you know someone who is also a socially engaged and politically engaged citizen who's committed to building a better world and and using writing as one of those models and and rejecting the idea that that art cannot or should not be politically engaged you know i think there's a essay by langston hughes uh, called the Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain, in which he speaks to this specifically, and he's he's really pushing other Black writers of the time to reject the idea that you have to write about flowers or the landscape or uh, or trees or you know ducks or, or around Walden Pond in order to uh, to be considered a legitimate 
uh, literary figure. And he's like, part of the insidiousness of white supremacy is that it makes you think you can't write about the experiences that you see every day. And it makes you feel like you have to write about something else in order to be considered authentic or legitimate in literary spaces. And, and you can't let that impulse guide your work. Uh, and I think, you know, for some people who are like, you know, Clint is always thinking about race or inequality and that's what he's, you know, writing so much about. I'm like, well, because that's what I see around me. That's what I, what makes me angry. That's what shapes my political commitments. And and for that, for me to pretend as if that should not then show up in my, my artistic work uh, would be disingenuous to, to the type of person that I'm, I hope to be in the world and the type of citizen I hope to be. Man, I think that's really, really well said. And uh, it kind of segues nicely into what I think uh, might be our last question. In your poem, Counting Descent, which your book ultimately shared a name with, you say that you are the most naive sibling in your family, but that you believe that we can build this place into something new. And the whole poem is beautiful and and people should absolutely read the whole thing. But I kind of want to end with this conversation of, what do you believe that this new world can look like? And what do you believe that building it can look like? Yeah, um, I'm glad you asked. I think that part of what building a world, you know, to come full circle, I guess, in the, in the conversation, part of what building a world necessitates is that we understand how the world has been built. And, you know, and that, I think that's the teacher in me who who is always, you know, because people will say, well, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? I think the entire nature of the question of what we can do changes when you understand what has been done, you know? And so the biggest things that I think people can do are to educate themselves and their families and their students and people around them. What has made, you know, if we're specifically talking in domestic context, what has made the United States look the way that it has today? And how can we honestly reckon with and recognize the history of racism as being a central organizing feature of what makes the world look the way that it does today. Because I think, you know, and probably a lot of people who listen to your podcast, I'm sure that very few of them are like, race doesn't matter, or we live in a post-racial society. I think we're very much past that and have been disabused of that notion. But but I don't know that people fully understand the extent to which the world that we live in and the country we live in has been shaped and continues to be shaped every single day by ostensibly race neutral neutral policies that have like very intentional or unintentional racialized outcomes. And so, you know, I would recommend some books for folks. One of my favorite things is is always recommending books for people to read. Uh I mentioned the The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Um I mentioned the American Apartheid. I would also say uh folks should read White Rage by Carol Anderson. Another good book is Black Reconstruction by Du Bois. It's very, very long, but even if you read the last 18 pages of that book, uh, I think it's well worth your time. And, oh man, there's so many. Uh, when Affirmative Action Was White by Ira Katz Nelson. Reconstruction by Eric Foner. Uh, and I always, I'm always recommending so many nonfiction books, but one fiction book that I read recently that just blew me away that I think also speaks to the history of of race and racism shaping our current, you know, political landscape is Homegoing by Yaj Jesse. I'm not sure, but it's spelled Y-A-A 
and the last name is G-Y-A-S-I. Um, and those are just a few. And if you email me, I will send you a, a whole list of, of stuff. But yeah, I think as we just got to educate ourselves on, to understand why our world looks the way that it does so that we can, because I think that that will fundamentally shape people's empathy toward those who are suffering because we'll have a better understanding of why they're suffering. Wow. Every time I leave conversations like this on Sounds Good, I always feel like I need days and days to process what I've learned, to really sit with the conversation that we had and to be intentional about letting that new knowledge become little small seeds for action in my own life. I absolutely loved when Clint said that we have reason to be more hopeful when we understand more because we have a greater understanding of how to pave the way for better solutions. I'm struck and challenged by this idea that part of our work of building the world has to come from an understanding of how the world has already been built. Make sure that you go and follow Clint Smith on Twitter and Instagram. I did years ago, and it's been so helpful and inspiring and Clint's just like a cool guy and you should totally do it. I'm so glad we got to have Clint on the show. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. Hit the subscribe button, download a few more episodes. If you liked this episode, you'll also connect with our conversations with fellow poet Anis Moshgani or artist and activist Devin Allen. Both of these guys inspire me so much. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. You can get lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at at good, good, good CO. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you know, the whole deal. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better. You can order issue one and issue two, or just subscribe for the entire year at goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week, and we'll be back next week with another inspiring conversation with an incredible person. Sound good? <laughs>